0: was dead and Themistocles driven out, and Camon was kept abroad by expeditions away from Greece, Pericles now advanced and took his side not with the rich and the few, but with the many and the poor. From the Life of Pericles by Plutarch. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton and this is the 18th episode of The Greek Sun, a series of podcasts about ancient Greek history. This is the second series in a total of eight or nine series of podcasts that will eventually be produced about the history of the world from the very beginning of the universe until our contemporary times. Recently, I just finished speaking on four episodes about the Persian War. As with all of my episodes, I emphasize primary sources wherever I can. For the most part, what I rely on, what I relate to my audience is taken from ancient writers such as Homer, Herodotus, Plutarch, Xenophon, Plato, etc. But with this episode, we will be saying goodbye to Herodotus. At the very end of his nine-volume History of the Persian War, he gives us some some, he gives us some information about how the Greeks handled the immediate post war environment after they defeated the Persians soundly at the Battle of Plataea. For the remainder of the episode, I will be re- relying primarily on Plutarch, a Greek writer from the first century AD, who used his own primary sources to relate stories about his own cultural heroes from ages past. Here and there, I've also used bits of Thucydides and Diodorus. But the work of Herodotus is not the only thing to which we are saying goodbye with this episode. If you read Greek history from beginning to end, you probably notice that it becomes increasingly less reliant on divine events. That is to say, gods and miracles appear less and less as time goes by, as the narrative approaches the present. For example, I began this series of podcasts, The Greek Sun, with stories and legends of mythological times. Kronos and Zeus and Heracles. Even the stories of Mycenae really were shrouded in a sort of legendary cloak. And when we came to Herodotus, the stories still had a mythological flavor, yes, but they were trending realistic. They were becoming more and more like history texts from our own recent past. Basically, straightforward descriptions of events, less and less colored by theological explanations. There are miracles and ghosts and prophecies and dream interactions with divine beings in Herodotus, but at no point does Zeus strike someone down with a lightning bolt, nor does Athena appear and lead the troops into battle in disguise as she does in Homer's epics. And as we we become more reliant on writers like Xenophon, Plutarch, Plato, and so on, we will see the gods disappear almost entirely as actors. We will hear less and less of prophetic dreams and acquire a focus for better or worse on more mundane things such as the names of great men and women the dates and locations of battles and so on the gods are remembered in these texts they are worshipped they are praised and of course sacrifices are held before any major venture to see if the victims are favorable but alexander the great conquers persia with battle-hardened men and superior tactics not with the aid of divine intervention. Now, though, before we say goodbye to Herodotus, let me remind you to support the podcast wherever you listen with a like, a share, a comment, or a subscription. Please check out the website as well. That's western traditions.org, where I have all the series and their episodes collected together, along with source lists, pictures, maps, and some Western traditions merchandise. You can also support my work directly with contributions through the PayPal or Patreon buttons on the support page. And now, with the Battle of Plataea behind us, let's get on with the Greek counterattack. After the victory at Salamis, the Greek Allied fleet did not disband. Some men may have returned to the mainland to fight or otherwise support the army, but the fleet as a whole remained intact, and it was not inactive. At the present moment, as the army made its way to Plataea in the glory of victory there, the fleet was at Delos, an island in the Cyclades, pondering its next move. The fleet was now under the command of Leotychides, one of the two Spartan kings. The number of ships in the fleet is not clear from primary sources not at this point but we can imagine that of the 380 ships that were at the battle of salamis there must have been some reductions due to combat and also some men may have left for duties elsewhere in the war herodotus makes mention of 110 triremes but this might have just been the peloponnesian contingent under the command of the spartan Leotychides. there may possibly have been over 200 ships in total the athenian portion of the fleet however large it was, was led by Xanthippus. He was apparently an Alcmenid through marriage. He was allied with Aristides. He had supplanted Themistocles in command of the Athenian contingent, probably as a result of the ongoing and continuous struggle between rival factions in Athenian politics, with Xanthippus and Aristides representing the aristocratic interests, and Themistocles, the popular or democratic party. Themistocles himself, apparently, was at Athens at the time of these battles and did not take direct part in the war any further. Anyway, at this time, an Ionian Greek messenger arrived in Delos to speak with the fleet commanders. He told them that the Persian fleet was berthed at Samos, an island just off the coast of Anatolia, not far from the major Ionian city of Miletus. This messenger encouraged the fleet to come to Samos and attack, Essentially, he told them, just show up, and all of Ionia will revolt. The Greeks held their customary sacrifices, and the victims were favorable for an attack, so they sailed to Samos. The Persians learned that the Greek fleet was on the way, and they were not surprised. They were also under orders not to engage in sea battle with the Greeks anymore. The Persians had recognized the vast superiority of the Superiority of the Greeks at sea, and they did not wish to suffer any more disastrous and embarrassing losses. Instead, after dismissing the Phoenician element of their fleet, perhaps because these sailors would not be useful in the next engagement, the Persians sailed the short distance to the Anatolian mainland to a rocky peninsula called Mycale. There awaited them a sixty thousand man force of Persian military, along with some allies. The sailors dragged their ships ashore and, with the soldiers already present, built a rampart to defend themselves. When the Greeks arrived at Samos, they were not satisfied with an easy victory. Seeing the Persians gone, they immediately sailed onward to the mainland and quickly discovered the Persian fortifications near the shore of Mycale. Sailing up and down the coast before these fortifications, the Greeks again engaged in psyops, calling out over and over, in Ionian Greek, To those Greeks who were among the Persian soldiers, allied with Xerxes, the herald with the Greek fleet cried out to the Ionians on the shore that they should join the fight for their freedom. Again, there were two purposes here, on the surface, to convince the Ionians to revolt, and beyond that, to at least make the Persians mistrust their Greek allies, which they did. The Persians had someone translate the shouted messages and disarmed some of their Greek allies. Others, like those from the city of Miletus, they sent away, ostensibly to guard one of the routes of retreat, but also simply to remove them from their midst. Thus, the Greek ruse worked, really. The numbers of the enemy were diminished. Now, the Greek fleet, seeing that the Persians would not be provoked to sail forth to battle, landed on the shore and disembarked, making their first amphibious assault on the Anatolian coast. The composition of this force was about half Athenian, and another large contingent was Spartan, and the remainder was from the various free city-states of Greece. Just as this makeshift army was forming for an attack, according to Herodotus, a rumor spread among the men that Pausanias and the Greek army had been victorious at Plataea, and that the Persian commander Mardonius was dead. Yet Herodotus also insists that the two battles happened on the same day, so it was impossible that any real news about the victory could have reached the fleet. Now, Herodotus also notes that the battle took place near a temple of Demeter, just as did the battle at Plataea on that same day. Make of all this what you will. Anyway, the battle was quick. The Persians formed a battle line and awaited the Greeks. The Athenians and their closest allies approached along the shoreline, while the Spartans and other allies marched through the hills along the coast. The Athenians did not wish to share the victory, Herodotus says, and they rushed the Persian line first. There was a brief battle in the open, and then the Persian forces retreated to the fortifications they had built, but these did not hold long against the fury of the Athenians, who breached the wall and entered the encampment. Now, misery multiplied for the Persians, their remaining Asian allies fled, and the disarmed Ionian Greeks among them, these also turned on the Persians with what weapons they could find, and worst of all, now the Spartans reached the battle, and the massacre was total, Those Persians that managed to flee, fell into the arms of the Milesians, who were also Ionian Greeks, those who had been sent to guard the route of escape. These Greeks led the fleeing Persians into the wilderness, and then they turned on them. The victorious Greeks then burnt the fortifications, as well as all the Persian ships that lay beached on the shore. They found plenty of treasure here as well, and when the destruction was complete, they sailed back to the island of Samos. To divvy up the booty and discuss the future. Now, post-war scenarios for armies composed of allies are always tricky matters. Consider how most recently the Second World War ended and transitioned into a long cold war between former allies, the Americans and the British in the west and the Soviet Union in the east. Already here, just after the Battle of Maikali, the allies had a falling out The Greek officers gathered on the island of Samos and considered what to do about the Ionian Greeks living on the Anatolian coast. The Spartans suggested that they should abandon the coast and bring all the willing Ionians back to mainland Greece, foreseeing difficulty in defending the region against Persia over the long term. I will explain in a moment why the Spartans were not eager to endure in this foreign adventure much longer. But the Athenians were angered by the suggestion. They told the Spartans that they did not appreciate them trying to make decisions for their Ionian brothers. Remember that the Spartans and many of the allies most closely associated with them were Doric-speaking Greeks. Check out the 10th episode of this second series for a description of the distinctions and the rivalries between the different dialects and cultures of ancient Greece. Anyway, the Athenians disputed the idea of abandoning Ionia and the Spartans let the matter drop. As a result, the cities and islands of the Anatolian coast were formally received into the alliance with promises of protection versus the Persians. With this matter settled, the fleet turned north and headed to the Hellespont, where they intended to destroy the bridges Xerxes had built there to bring his army into Europe. At this point in his history of the Persian War, Herodotus makes what is by now a not-so-surprising digression suddenly he tells a brief tale of the persians who had survived the battle of Mycale, fighting amongst themselves as they go these escaping persian soldiers soon arrive at sardis where king xerxes has been residing since the loss at salamis the year before i won't go into many more details but herodotus relates a little soap opera scenario in which xerxes falls in love with one of his son's wives the affair is discovered by Xerxes' own wife, who then manipulates him into surrendering the girl into the queen's power, and then the queen mutilates the girl, cutting off her breasts, tongue, lips, and ears, and throwing all these to the dogs, making the woman watch as her body parts were fought over and consumed by the hungry canines before sending the woman back to her husband. It is a savage tale. And perhaps it is just anti-Persian propaganda tacked on to the end of the history to reaffirm that the barbarians are cruel brutes and not civilized like the Greeks. Anyway, with these last couple pages in his epic history, Herodotus tells of how the Greek fleet arrived at the Hellespont and discovered that the bridges were already down, destroyed in a storm some time before. A critical moment in the alliance has the now arrived. The goal of their association seems to have been achieved. The Persian has been defeated and run out of Greece. So the Peloponnesians, much as their counterparts in the army had done after Plataea, these Peloponnesians depart in their ships. Mission accomplished. These include the Spartans and all their closest allies. Now this was a big deal. The Spartans had essentially turned away from the league and left it without a leader now, the reasons why the Spartan would do this and why they did not want to ensure protection for the Greek cities in Anatolia are multiple. For starters, an offensive war was a little out of Spartan routine. The purpose of their army was mostly to protect their homeland. Recall how reluctant they had been to leave the Peloponnesians and fight the Persians. Now, this was not cowardice. We know the Spartans were brave, and even their sometime ally, sometime enemy Athens recognized this bravery but the desire to focus on defensive war was a crucial matter of survival for the Spartans. They needed to stay close to home in order to keep the slave population, the helots, in check. As we shall see later in this episode, the helots were ever ready to find an opportunity to overthrow their masters, so it was critical for the army, or a large portion of it anyway, to stay close to home and not to run off adventuring in Anatolia or some such place. There was another consideration, though, The Spartans were the soul of insularity. They had no desire to know the cultures or other ways of living that strangers had. Remember how they called anyone who was not a Spartan a stranger. They rarely traveled, and when they did, it was only when necessary and only short distances. Ambassadors to other Greek cities, for instance, but even this was sort of suspicious. The Spartans did not want new ideas being brought back home from these travels. Consider, if you will, how the Soviet Union in the 20th century discouraged its citizens from traveling or having anything to do with foreigners. There's a similar motivation here. So having your entire army off in foreign lands, seeing exotic peoples, probably decadent peoples, this was taboo to the Spartans. When the Persians had finally been run off, the Spartans were eager to get their army back home. The Athenians remained, however, now under the leadership of Xanthippus, And here begins a new story arc in the saga of Greek freedom. The Athenians, as ever, were tireless and ambitious. It was not enough to survive, not enough to preserve what they have always had. They were an acquisitive, aggressive, and enterprising people. Even with their reduced forces, after the departure of the Spartans, they decided to continue the offensive against the Persians. While the army of Xerxes had been run out of Greece, there were still numerous functionaries, ambassadors, garrisons, merchants, and others from Persia living and, to some extent, ruling over the cities and towns in the region that we know of today as the north of Greece, that is, in Thrace and Macedonia and the surrounding lands. So Xanthippus beached the ships of the Athenian navy on the shore of the Chersonese peninsula, a place that we know as Gallipoli today. He then led the sailors as an infantry force to the city of Sestos, where many Persian officials and their allies had recently fled, seeking refuge there since it was a well-fortified place. The Athenians besieged the city. The siege endured into the late autumn before the Greek troops began to complain, wishing to be able to return home like their allies and enjoy the recent victories over the Persians. But Xanthippus and his officers forced them to stay. We are not sure exactly when, but it was probably during that winter that the Persian supplies ran out, as did the patients of the locals in Sestos who supported them. Seeing this, the Persians tried to escape, but the Athenians captured the city, and most of the escaping officials were caught as well. Those who did escape into the countryside were murdered by the Thracians. Herodotus reports that one of the high-ranking Persians was sacrificed to a local god. The highest-ranking Persian in the town was a man named Artactes. This man was captured during the battle. Xanthippus, the Athenian commander, took Artactes to a spot overlooking where the bridges had been built across the Hellespont. Here he crucified the Persian official. As Artactes slowly died on the cross, Xanthippus brought out the man's son, who had also been captured, and the Greeks stoned the boy to death as his dying father watched. It was now 478 BC. Another spring had come, and with it, freedom for the Greeks. To be sure, Persians remained in some cities on the Greek mainland, and in Ionia on the other side of the Aegean. In some of those places, they still ruled in Xerxes' name, but they had few troops to support them, and the goodwill of the local Greeks was dissipating. The tide had definitively turned the days of Persian occupation, even Persian influence, were obviously numbered. We have now closed the book of Herodotus, and we must look to more scattered sources for what happens next. Primarily, I rely on Plutarch for the events that follow. Now, Themistocles had rather quickly lost some of his status after Salamis. Power in Athens was usually a slippery thing to hold on to. Ostracism, or just the threat of that exile, kept individuals from reaching for too much of it. But Themistocles rebounded in the years immediately after the Greek victories at Plataea and Mycale. He organized the rebuilding of the walls of Athens, and did so under difficult political circumstances. The Spartans and the rest of the Peloponnesians still considered themselves leagued with the Athenians in some regard, and when they heard that the Athenians were rebuilding, they urged them not to. A fortified Athens, they argued, would not withstand another assault if the Persians came again anyway, and then after the barbarians took the city over, it would become an enemy fortress in Greek land. Better to leave Athens an open city, they opined, and for the Athenians to seek refuge on Salamis or in the Peloponnesus if the war ever shifted in the Persians' favor again. Given the Spartans' record on this matter, during the Persian War, I think we can all understand the Athenian reluctance to rely on Peloponnesian security promises. When the Athenians would not desist the opinion of the Spartans became more than an opinion. It became somewhat threatening. Themistocles, along with many other Athenians probably, feared that the Spartans might send an army to stop the rebuilding. So Themistocles journeyed to Sparta, where he took his time and spoke at length, assuring his Lacedaemonian audience that the building would stop. When someone from Aegina denied that the building had stopped, Themistocles urged them to send ambassadors to see for themselves. Meanwhile, as all these prolonged discussions played out, the Athenians were furiously rebuilding. So but by, by the time that the ambassadors arrived, the walls were essentially finished, and now Themistocles sent word to detain the ambassadors, who basically became hostages, ensuring the goodwill of the Peloponnesian allies. The Spartans realized that they could do nothing more about the matter, and glumly accepted the new situation. As the next several years went by, Themistocles also played a significant role in building up and fortifying the Piraeus, that port town on the coast on which Athens relied so heavily. However, things eventually went bad for this Athenian politician, as they so often did for popular men in Athens. His fate, strangely or not, was tied to the fate of Pausanias, the Spartan regent, who had led the Greeks in their victory at Plataea. Now, sometime after the victory at Plataea, Pausanias was officially accused of Medism. You may remember that Medism was the act of cooperating with the Persians, whom the Greeks frequently called Medes. Medizing, for the Greeks of the classical era, was something akin to turning to the dark side of the force in Star Wars. It was the most profound betrayal of Greek values. There are a number of different accounts about how ba- how. Pausanias may have medized, I rely primarily on Plutarch and Thucydides here. Apparently, after the battle, after the victory at Plataea, there were allegations that Pausanias had been in direct and secret communications with Xerxes, that he had offered to marry a daughter of Xerxes and to bring Sparta over to the Persian alliance, that Persian prisoners who had allegedly escaped had actually been set free by Pausanias. Plutarch also relates a lurid story possibly just a bit of character assassination, of how Pausanias debauched a young girl and later killed her in a drunken stupor. Perhaps worst of all, though, Pausanias was beginning to act high-handedly with his counterparts, and he was said to have started wearing Persian clothes and quote-unquote acting Persian. While Pausanias denied these accusations, and there was virtually no evidence to support any of them, nevertheless, he went into self-exile. He was later recalled to Sparta, but new vague accusations of treachery emerged again. The next year, in 477 BC, confronted with the evidence that he was trying to cover something up, Pausanias fled to the temple of Athena in Sparta. It was common in ancient times to use temples as places of refuge when accused of crimes, as a place from which one could not be extracted. Think of how in modern times, especially in fictional productions, people have tried using Catholic churches as sanctuaries to avoid being arrested for one crime or another. Pausanias was allowed to take refuge in the temple, but his mother publicly disowned him, and the Spartans sealed the entrance to the temple with bricks. So Pausanias slowly starved to death inside the temple, another great man of Greece, brought to an ignominious end. What does Themistocles have to do with this? Well, Themistocles publicly was Pausanias' enemy, since Themistocles was of the populist party in Athens, and as a Spartan, Pausanias certainly represented aristocratic interests. But there were stories that the two men, men were, in private anyway, at least amicable, and that Themistocles had some knowledge of Pausanias's treachery, even if he was not directly involved. Anyway, In the years immediately after Pausanias' death, suspicion built around Themistocles that he had been involved somehow in Pausanias' treachery, and sometime around 472 BC, he was ostracized from Athens. He went to live briefly in nearby Argos, but the Spartans kept up the personal attacks, and he was soon forced to flee for his life. The next stage of his story is its own odyssey as Themistocles traveled from city to city in the Greek world, sometimes in disguise, never more than one step ahead of his enemies. Eventually, though, he fled to Persia and he became a member of the Persian king's court. Many years later, around 459 BC, the Persian king Artaxerxes had become vexed by the military successes of the Greeks. He asked Themistocles to repay the honors and favors that Persia had done for him by providing counsel in war against Greece. Themistocles, however, died that same year. Some say he died of natural causes, but Plutarch claims that Themistocles drank bull's blood and thus poisoned himself to death rather than betray his homeland. In all that time, as these dramas of treachery played out, in the wake of the war, the Greeks formed the Delian League. Now, the Spartans had essentially left the Greek alliance after the Battle of Mycale. The Athenians, though, and many of their Ionian allies, wanted to maintain an active alliance against the Persians, and this was not just a defensive alliance, which the Spartans might have been more interested in. No, this was an offensive league formed by the Greeks, according to Thucydides' quote, to avenge the wrongs that they had suffered by ravaging the territory of the king, unquote. We must read that line closely. The intent of the league league was not just to preserve Greek freedom and independence, not simply to rescue the Ionian Greeks on the coast of Anatolia. The intent was to ravage, to assault the Persians, to make them pay for what they had done. The Athenians, once provoked, had a long and unforgiving memory The League was initiated at a congress of allies that met for the first time on the island of Delos in the Cyclades sometime around the year 478 BC. Over time, this Delian League would attract over 300 city-states into its alliance. It was governed by a council or synod of representatives from each state. Each member state had one vote, no matter how small or large. This method of voting would seem to negate Athens' influence as the member state with the largest population. However, as we shall see, things played out in such a way that soon very few would dare to vote against Athens. This league would always be led by the Athenians, and in hindsight, we have come to refer to it as the Athenian Empire. The role of Athens in the league is often referred to as that of the hegemon, Hegemony is the official or unofficially recognized role of leadership in an alliance. During the Persian Wars, for instance, uh, Sparta had been the hegemon of the league formed to fight the Persians. Now, Athens had achieved the hegemony of its own league. As for the Spartans, they still maintained hegemony over their own separate league, actually. For the most part, their league was made up of other Peloponnesian states. There was something new about this alliance, though, this Delian League. It was organized to maintain a standing military force, primarily the fleet. Prior leagues and alliances had been meant to organize armies newly raised in response to threats. So, if enemies arose and attacked one member of an alliance, the other members of the alliance would gather forces to respond, typically by forming a hoplite army. The Delian League, however, was going to maintain a constant vigil against the Spartans, mostly with a naval fleet, and perpetually make war on them. So this would require not only manpower, but also various resources such as ships and supplies of food and tools and weapons, and most important of all, money. So there would have to be both military and financial leadership of this alliance, The first treasurer of the Delian League was Aristides, the same man who had been politically both enemy and ally of Themistocles. Themistocles, before his exile, was also a strong supporter of the League. Since the Battle of Salamis, though, a new star had been rising from the Athenian populace. His name was Cimon, and he was the son of Miltiades, the commanding general at the Battle of Marathon. Now, just before Salamis... When the Persian ships were known to be approaching Athens and the call went out to man the ships for a coming naval battle, Cimon had gone to the temple in Athens and left the bridle of his horse there, publicly stating that Athens had need of mariners instead of horsemen, and then he had gone on to join the fleet. In the years after the war, his fame grew among the Athenians and among other Greeks as well. He had fought valiantly in the battle at Salamis, to be sure, but that could be said of many an Athenian man. Still, this and family connections probably helped propel him into high government office, and he was eventually awarded the title of admiral. Kimon was daring, like his father Miltiades, but he was also regarded as closer to the common man, perhaps because he was rough around the edges like another Greek hero of the time, Themistocles. Like that wily ambitious politician, Kimon was without training in finer things, such as music. He was also described by some as disorderly in his life and that he was overly fond of drinking. Further, there were some dark background rumors about the man that circulated, such as the accusation that he and his sister had lived together in an incestuous relationship. Unlike Themistocles, though, chimon definitely associated more with the aristocratic party in Athens. He became an ally of Aristides, politically, and a rival of Themistocles, even if he shared some qualities with the man in the public eye anyway. Cimon was vaulted into the heights of popularity, though, after he discovered the treachery of Pausanias, and demanded that the man be recalled to Sparta. In the aftermath, as the Delian League formed, it was Cimon who was chosen to lead the Greek forces, which were now primarily made up of the Athenians and their Ionian allies. Finally, the Athenians had been given command, and as their allies would soon discover, the Athenians would never relinquish that command, not by their own choice. Now, during his time as admiral Admiral of the fleet, Cimon ran the Persians out of Thrace. Famously, after he captured Byzantium, Cimon's allies offered him his choice of the spoils of war. He then divided the spoils into two parts. One part was the captured prisoners of war, and the other was the material booty, the jewels, animals, gold, silver, and so on. Then he told the allies that he would take whichever half they did not want. The Allies chose the material goods, and many ridiculed Cimon for his his submission to this choice. But then, Cimon ransomed all the prisoners back to the Persians, and he gathered mountains of treasure, much more than had been captured in the battle as a result. Much of this treasure he gave to the Athenian government in order to support the Athenian navy and build more ships, but he also kept much of the proceeds and thus became wealthy. But Cimon is remembered for more than being financially wise, as well as an inspiring combat leader. He was also a clever politician, at least in foreign affairs. After retaking a town in Thrace from the Persians, he turned it into a colony for Athens. And he did the same with the island of Scyros, another island in the Cyclades, where Cimon was victorious. He expelled the pirates that had been running running things on that island, and he also brought the island into the Athenian realm by bringing Athenian colonists there. More importantly, perhaps, as you may recall from the 12th episode of this series about the origins of Athens, the Athenians had exiled Theseus centuries before, and he had died murdered on this island. Cimon claimed to have discovered the bones of Theseus on Scyros after his victory, and he had them sent back to Athens. This deed helped him acquire even more public approval back home. Now, Cimon was well regarded as a man whom wealth did not corrupt. He kept a simple house, but the public was always welcome to feast with him, and he was generous to all whom he met. Still, though he was popular across all spectrums of social classes in Athens for a time, it must be remembered that he represented aristocratic interests. He opposed the populace, Themistocles, in politics, and kept him from abolishing the Areopagus, a higher court in Athens dominated by the nobility. As the years passed, the Delian League grew stronger but Athens, in particular, grew strong under Cimon's leadership. After some time, the other member states of the League became reluctant to continue sending men to man the navy. The generals and admirals of the Athenians were upset by this, but Cimon encouraged this. He arranged for the other city-states of the League to substitute money instead of contributing men to to the League's forces, and then he used this money to employ more Athenians in the fleet. Thus, over time, the other members of the Delian League became mere financial contributors, while it was the Athenians who actually manned and controlled the military. And soon the other cities in the Delian League discovered that the men that they had paid to protect them had become their masters. The Athenians could enforce their will on anyone because they were the trained and experienced warriors, while the men of the other city-states had become accustomed to living a soft civilian life. The League's forces went to battle against the Macedonians one year, but Cimon, after defeating them, turned back and did not conquer that kingdom, though he easily could have. He was accused of taking a bribe and being more aligned politically anyway with the nobility of Macedonia. Now, after Themistocles had been gone some years, his place at the forefront of the populist movement was taken by two men, One named Ephialtes, and the other was a man called Pericles. He was the son of that Xanthippus who had led the Athenian forces at the Battle of Mycale. Over time, it was Pericles who became the chief political rival of Cimon. After the Macedonian scandal, Cimon went out to war once again. While he was gone, Pericles and other politicians led the common people to completely overthrow the Areopagus, and to establish a pure democracy in Athens. When Cimon returned, he was upset to discover this. However, the populist element in Athens had always had fundamental disagreements with Cimon, and it increasingly rankled the public to hear him praise the Spartans and their approach to matters. According to Plutarch, Cimon would often make critical remarks about the Athenian political decisions that went against his will, and he would say things like, the Lacedaemonians would never do this. Indeed, Cimon came to Sparta's aid at one critical moment, and not without controversy. One year, an earthquake leveled Sparta, and the Spartans were in danger from a Helot revolt. That slave class had finally seen a great opportunity to destroy their masters once and for all amid the ruins of their city. Though the pro-democratic party in Athens opposed going to the aid of Sparta, Cimon led a small army there to help the Spartans get back on their feet, without fear of the Helots. However, the Spartans later sent for more aid from Athens when they were again in danger from another revolt and from the attacks of their fellow Peloponnesians. This time, though, after the Athenians arrived, the Spartans sent them away again rather quickly, complaining that the Athenians were threatening the stability of their society, that the Athenians were bringing their cultural innovations with them. This ingratitude displeased the Athenians greatly, and they took out their political rage on Cimon. They ostracized him for ten years. However, not long after, the Spartans went to war against Phocis, a Greek territory to the north of Attica. Coming back from victory there, the Spartans found themselves cut off from their return home because the Athenian army was blocking the way. The Athenians hoped to defeat the Spartans away from home and finish their long rivalry with this ancient city. Kimon offered to fight alongside his Athenian countrymen, but he was turned away. The Athenians lost the battle and were forced to give way, allowing the Spartan army to return home. This is the beginning of a conflict sometimes called the First Peloponnesian War, which lasted from around 459 to 445 BC. I will produce future episodes about the Second Peloponnesian War, which began in 431 BC, but for now just know that there were on-again and off-again conflicts for decades between Sparta and her allies with the Delian League uh, in the years after the victory in the Persian War. Anyway, after the start of these hostilities, the Athenians regretted ostracizing Cimon, the military genius, and they recalled him early from his ostracism. Even Pericles, his political nemesis, welcomed him back. Some say even that the two men worked out an agreement, with Pericles managing domestic affairs and Cimon in charge of security and foreign diplomacy. Eager to put the returned warrior back to work, around 451 BC, the Athenians put Cimon in charge of an allied fleet of 200 ships, ...and sent him to make war on the island of Cyprus, which was a Persian possession. Kimon died, however, during the battle. Some say that he died of a sickness, while others say that the sickness came after he was wounded in battle. Regardless, seeing that he was doomed to die, in his last word, Kimon told his leading officers to withdraw the army from Cyprus... ...and return home without telling anyone that he had died. The army successfully embarked on the ships and returned home to Greece only a few knowing that among the cargo and the booty in the hold of one of their ships was the body of Cimon, even in death, leading the Greek army on its way. Now, Cimon died in 450 BC, and when he was gone, there was only one man really holding power in Athens and therefore wielding strong influence over the entire Delian League. The age of Pericles had come. And now we come to Pericles. This is the great man of classical Greece. Love him or hate him, he remains today a great and remembered figure in history and in politics. While he was not primarily responsible for turning the Delian League into the Athenian Empire, he would become its greatest leader. He was born in 490 BC, the same year as the Battle of Marathon. He was brought up in the tribe of Achimantus, and he was the son of Xanthippus, who had rivaled Miltiades during the Persian War and had led the Athenian forces subsequent to the Battle of Salamis. His mother was an Alcmenid, and her ties to people of influence in the city were probably responsible for his entry into government. However, connections may get you started on the road to power, but only the quality of your character and the force of your ambition can carry you to the highest levels. Pericles' ambition, after years of struggle with rivals such as Cimon and Thucydides and negotiations with allies, this ambition took him to the very top, to become the supreme leader of Athens and to guide it to its brightest day. It was not an easy path. Pericles was born with an unusually shaped head and with an introverted character. His youth he dedicated to learning music, drama, and philosophy. This background makes for an interesting contrast with Contrast with Cimon, who was rougher and less educated in these finer things of life. Yet the rough Cimon represented the aristocrats, while the more sophisticated Pericles would come to be the man of the people, of the lower classes, even while he was from one of the wealthiest families and had a refined upbringing. Pericles, this man of gentle birth and upbringing, would also become known as the Olympian, due to his thundering tone when he spoke in public. And public, the public was just about the only place that he was known to appear. Plutarch, in his essay on the life of Pericles, paints a picture of a man who lived almost entirely in the public view, spending most of his life in the market or at a political council. He rarely gathered with friends or even had supper with his friends, and he guarded his speech at all times, always trying to speak precisely. In today's politics, we might call this staying on message. He probably did not want to let his conversation wander and allow someone to quote him later out of context. And Pericles could make words work for him. Thucydides, an Athenian uh, politician and general, the one who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War, remarked on this trait of Pericles when having a conversation with the king of Sparta. When the king asked Thucydides who was the better wrestler, him or Pericles, Thucydides stated, "'When I have thrown him down and given him a good fall,' He insists that he has not fallen, and he makes bystanders believe him instead of their own eyes. So maybe in some way, Pericles is responsible for the old saying, who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Strangely, Pericles left almost no written record behind him. And this is not just the result of 2,000 years of decay destroying his works. He wrote no essays, produced no autobiography, Even Plutarch, who lived only four or five centuries later, remarked that there was virtually nothing left of Pericles' words and text, even though he essentially lived in that same time period as people like Plato, Xenophon, Thucydides, and Aristotle, all who left behind their corpuses of work. No, Pericles devoted himself to public speaking, in the old-fashioned way to large groups of listeners in person, moving them with the force of his words we should not in any way confuse pericles with the politicians of our modern day however he was not simply someone who sat behind a desk and ordered others to fight for him regardless of where a man stood in the political spectrum of athens like all other men he was also a warrior pericles like Cimon, like themistocles and aristides and the other leaders of athens pericles fought in many battles he was recognized for fighting bravely for instance at the battle of tanagra where the Athenians were driven back by the Spartans. And you can see this martial side of many men of the time in their statues that remain to us today. Many of them display the subjects wearing helmets because these men were, before anything else, soldiers. But it was also true that Pericles, once he had achieved supreme power, was wary when it came to military conflict, not endeavoring to engage Athens in struggles that she was unlikely to win. And it is true that most of the expansion of the empire occurred before he rose to his supremacy, after which time he actually curbed the imperialist tendencies of the populace. There were men in the government at this time who spoke of taking Egypt from the Persians, of conquering Carthage, even of going to invade Tuscany. Just imagine how history might have changed if Pericles had not restrained these war aims and Greeks had gone to seize Tuscany in the mid-5th century BC, when the Romans were still just a minor coastal power in Italy. To some of the contradictions of this personality, Thucydides stated that Pericles led an aristocratical government that went by the name of democracy, but was really the supremacy of just one man. Yet as powerful as Pericles became, and as much money as the allies that he and, and he spent so freely, when he died, he had not expanded his own personal estate by any amount, not according to Plutarch anyway. So Pericles may have been a demagogue and a tyrant, but in the end, he did so to the greater glory of Athens, and not to bestow any benefits upon his own lineage. In the aftermath of the Athenian defeat versus the Spartan army near Tanagra, sometime around 460 BC, the Athenians expanded their wall-building program. And Pericles was in government by now, but not quite yet at its helm. Not content with merely the walls around their city, which were indeed impregnable to the Spartans, the Athenians also wanted to ensure that no one could ever cut off their access to the sea. So they built the long walls, two and later three fortified walls that extended from the city of Athens all the way to the port town of Piraeus, some six or ten miles away. The Piraeus itself had also been walled and fortified years before. Now these walls essentially then formed a long and very wide tunnel uh, that led all the way from the port to Athens, a fortified and protected place from which they could circuit back and forth to the sea. Of course, the navy clearly needed access to the sea. It was assumed, and rightly so, that whenever Athens might be besieged, it would be thus able to sustain itself from the sea and also sally forth from this port, to attack its enemies at home and in that way undermine any siege. But secure access to the sea was about more than just maintaining the navy and obtaining food and supplies for the populace. The navy was also a symbol of the change in status of the common man in Athens. While Athens had long been a democracy of sorts, in truth, it had been run by the aristocrats. It had been more a democracy of the aristocracy, along with landed families and some of the middle class, and this had not always been an amicable arrangement. But the aristocrats had formed the core of the army as hoplite warriors, and these hoplite aristocrats were also supplemented by the middle class, and I explained all of this transition in episode 12 of this second series. But the ships of the victorious fleet at Salamis had been rowed primarily by men of the poorer classes, not by the well-to-do. Hoplite warriors were aboard the ships for those rare occasions when a battle might occur, but the day-to-day patrolling of the fleet was a thing managed entirely by the rowers, who were also more numerous than the warriors on board. Consider how in a modern navy there is a small number of marines on board a large ship that is primarily manned by sailors. So these poor rowers had acquired a new status in Athens, and politicians like Themistocles and later Pericles and others catered others might say, pandered, to these lower classes of society. The poor might not have had much of a voice in politics before, but now you could no longer risk offending them. They were absolutely important to the welfare of the state. And so maintaining access to the sea with these walls, as well as maintaining a large navy, was important to the poor because it supported their rising status in the city. Now, the Democratic or Populist party that Pericles led was, at the same time, an imperialist party. Contrary to what a modern Westerner might perceive when thinking about the factions in Athens, it was the Democratic or the People's Party that was eager to dominate other members of the Delian League and to enforce their will militarily on their allies. Again, possibly because the lower classes of Athens benefited from their empire in multiple ways. Not only had their political status improved but the athenians also turned their conquests into colonies when enemy cities or rebellious cities of the league were conquered by the allied navy which was almost entirely athenian political leaders like pericles would follow up these victories by sending out athenian citizens to divide up the conquered land thus the city or territory would become a steady ally to athens with men from its own populace in place Plutarch speaks of how Pericles sent out 1,000 men to one place or 500 to another, where they would be given gifts of land. And these men would naturally come from the lowest classes, those who would have nothing to lose by picking up stakes and heading out to a new frontier. Aristocrats, the wealthy class, they could not undertake these ventures because they had property to oversee at home. So the poor of Athens were given land after each victory, and thus foreign lands were turned into cultural and military bases under Athenian control and the poor became an integral part of Athenian expansion. In 454 BC, Pericles removed the Delian League's treasure with which it funded operations of the navy. He removed that treasure from the island of Delos and brought it back to Athens for safekeeping. This was done unilaterally without the consent of the other league members. This was quite a controversy. The treasure then was used not only to supply and maintain the military forces of the League, but also to adorn temples, to build amphitheaters, to erect statues in Athens, turning it into an opulent city unlike any other in the League. The Parthenon was built with these funds, as was the new chapel at Eleusis, and even the completion of the long walls themselves was due in part to the funding made possible by the treasury of the Alliance. Plutarch tells of how the other League members by this time had come to resent Athens. Once the Athenians had been the stars of the rebellion against Persia, the brave heroes of the tale, always eager to risk life and limb to further the cause of Greek liberty. Now they had become oppressors, democratic tyrants, praising democracy at home while lording it over their friends and allies. So Pericles, by 450 BC, had acquired a virtually supreme power in Athens and over much of Greece, a power that he would hold until the day that he died. Troubled times had helped Pericles acquire power, and his supremacy in his life would end amid more troubled times. A future episode will describe the Peloponnesian War, an apocalyptic conflict between Sparta and Greece that began in 431 BC and lasted 27 years. Pericles was still in power when that war began. That conflict is sometimes referred to as the Second Peloponnesian War because there was another war, or series of battles anyway, between Sparta and Athens that began sometime around 459 BC. I briefly mentioned some of these conflicts a few minutes ago. During that time, Pericles became the leader of his populist factions in Athens and exiled Cimon from the city for some years before calling him back again. The years after the death of Cimon in 450 BC, down to the start of the Peloponnesian War in 431 BC, really composed the age of Pericles, the summit not only of Athens' political power in the Aegean, but also a golden age of Greek culture, For example, it is in the years after the Persian War that Greek drama develops into the classic plays that we have remaining to us today and that we will begin to get into in the next episode. And furthermore, Greek knowledge in the form of mathematics, philosophy, science, medicine, and so on, all seem to experience some sort of flourishing or renaissance here. So, Now, this podcast will take a break from its inexorable march through history, and in the following episode, begin to explore one of the various ways in which Greek culture began to flourish during this golden age. Until next time, then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.